He's the data guy and he wants to have a talk with his business pals while they're off the clock on podcast like a business. Today we have Mike Lorario with us. Mike actually is somebody I got to see speak in person and Mike caught me off guard because he started talking about the military and his background in the military, which I'm interested in, but I'm a data guy. So I figured I would just kind of listen half-heartedly until he started recommending a bunch of different books on leadership, on data, on using data. And then I read his book and he really got into how he takes a person and puts them inside of his framework. Now, his first book that I read was Leadership and Balance, and I was blown away by that. But I just recently heard he came out with a new book called Management and Balance, and I'll let him talk about that. But Mike, would you please enlighten us on the world of data from your background in the military? Yeah, it's interesting. I um, That conference really flipped a switch for me. Some of the discussions about data and how data literacy will be like what we were thinking about with computer literacy 20 years ago. Um, so in this new book, I actually, when I got into material management, I added data as one of the material items that you need to be able to manage. Um, I never thought of it that way. In, in the military, we always refer to it basically as, as feedback or stats. Like what's your status or how many of your people are up on their dental readiness? Hated that one. That one was like, like what the hell does dental readiness got to do with going to war? Well, if you've ever needed a root canal in a combat zone, you know exactly why dental readiness is important. That happened to me in 2014, and I was never so glad to have a root canal when I cracked a tooth. Huh. Um, and so, you know, all that stuff was out there. And I think um, early on, I just didn't really have an appreciation for what it was, um, where it was, how do I access it? How do I safeguard it? Um, and how can I use it to make better decisions? I think that's the amazing stuff I see going on with the community you're in and some of the other people that are uh, in the innovators, the Innovative Executives League. Um, how are they using data and artificial intelligence and machine learning to make better decisions? Uh, to And I think that's amazing. I love it. And I think one thing that really, and if we guys we could kind of even start with this, one thing you said that really just... Uh, hit it for me. And if you could kind of give a TLDR or a too long, didn't read version of it about IEDs and yeah. how vehicles changed over time and how the military is like, oh, we've got these people blowing us up. We got to make a bigger truck and we got to make a Humvee and an armored Humvee. And yeah, what you what they ended up finding that actually made the difference. I thought that was perfect for business. Well, yeah. Um, so, you know, the military has a lot of resources and a lot of smart people. Um, but I think we were absolutely looking at the wrong problem or the problem in the wrong way. And as we were getting constantly blown up in Iraq in particular, we realized that there were these like the bad guys were doing it in the same spot. Why? Same thing in Afghanistan. The places we were getting at ambushed in Afghanistan, I guarantee you, Alexander the Great got ambushed in those places in Afghanistan. <laughs> the the yep. Brits in 1870 got ambushed in those places. The Russians in 1980 got ambushed in those same places. Why? Because the terrain is the terrain. And that doesn't Choke points change. are choke points, right? Like there's Right, right. And so if you just had the data of like where people had been ambushed and blown up, well, maybe you'd avoid those places or maybe you'd put them under surveillance or maybe you'd, you know, you'd have people ready to go to 
And it took us a long time to start doing some of those things and to get proactive. And it's one of the things I wrote about in the first book was this whole mindset shift of getting left to boom. A lot of people use that expression without really knowing what it means or where it came from. And Joe Votel, who ended up retiring as a four-star general, brilliant dude, uh, his task force were the ones that said, you know what, here's the, the problem is that we're not seeing the bad guys until they blow us up. Yet there's all these things they're doing. If we put that on a chart and we graphed it uh, relative to our visibility of them and our ability to react to them, there's, there's going to be a gap between when we see them and when we can do something about that. And th those are our thresholds for engagement. Um, but the population, their threshold for visibility is way lower than ours. They see these Muldoons all the time running around. Like, they're not from around here. But here's this guy. Comes to town with a big truck full of explosives. He's digging a hole. They see that. Um, so how do we get them to tell us what they're seeing? How do we get to see what they're seeing sooner? And on that graph of over months, days, minutes to getting blown up, how do we move left of the boom getting blown up? And that was a very data-driven process, but it was also required people to change their mindsets about collecting the data, understanding the data, doing something with the data, right? And going out and getting the bad guys before they blew us up. Now, part of that was the vehicle transformation. We went into Iraq and Afghanistan in 2000 and, uh, 2001, 2002, 2003. In that, in that time period, you know, the, the Iraq invasion happened in 2003, and we'd already been in Afghanistan for about a year and a half um, with oh, vehicles that were not, that were not armored, basically. Um, they had canvas sides, the vast majority of them. And so we were losing soldiers left and right. Um, so again, looking at the problem the wrong way, we were looking at it like it was a getting blown up problem, not a mobility problem. If we had, if we had yeah. said, Hey, how do we move away from the places where we're getting blown up? Oh, where are we getting blown up? We're getting blown up on the roads. I, I talked to you guys in June about the, um, I think about the, the guy I worked for in Iraq in 05, um, one of the, well, he was running all the intelligence infrastructure in Iraq. And he said, why aren't we calling these things roadside bombs? And I was like, because they're they're IEDs, you idiot, you know. And then I'm like, oh, we should have been calling them roadside bombs. We might have been thinking about the problem differently, and we would have said, hey, let's get away from the roads. But instead, we built these bigger and bigger armored vehicles, which were forced to stay on the roads, and especially a place like Afghanistan, where the, to yeah. begin with, there are there, there are no really good roads. And when you talk about driving in some of these places, like in Konar or Nuristan, where it's this tight mountain passes and roads that are carved into the side of a mountain, you can't you can't get a big uh, MRAP on those roads. And so, anyway, we looked at the problem wrong. We didn't really analyze the data ourselves, the terrain, the enemy, um, and we made a lot of mistakes. And I think a lot of it was cover your ass. Hey, let's just try to keep guys alive. Let's not get them blown up. Or if they get blown up, let's try to keep them from dying. Um, but it didn't work because the enemy kept innovating. The enemy kept finding ways to make bigger bombs or, or set them off differently. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it, it was a real problem that, uh, I don't think we ever fully got in front of, but we did a much better job once we started to look at the data, honestly. And there is and so much I could unpack in that last just sentence there too. Cause I mean, business leaders are constantly letting their people blow up month end, month after month. They're like, why didn't I hit my number and who's going to get in trouble or the week before month end or quarter end, we're going to blow overtime and just make everybody work all the time. And then next week, cut them off. And it's yeah. the same thing. And 
how long did the army do that? I mean, it wasn't like they made a model of vehicle and the next month made a model of vehicle and change it. You're talking a decade of time that they're still fighting IEDs until eventually you're like road bomb. And then all of a sudden everybody's looking at each other like, what, what, if, what if we just avoided the roads yeah, and we right. go another way? And that what's funny is a lot of people feel like you can't say that in business, but business leaders are waiting for ideas like that. They may not listen to you right away. And I'm willing to bet there was more than one person in the army who said that at the time before it actually got heard, right? And it's one of those things where you got to repeat it, you got to believe in it, you got to prove it. But I just love the way they pivot completely from that. And I think of the billions invested in your, I remember your, I'll give a, a short recap, how they took the original Jeep from like the 1960s and you get it to the Humvee and just the carrying capacity is less because it's all covered in armor. It can't fit people. It can't yeah. fit, it, it can't do its job because now we've just tried to fix the problem of IEDs so hard that the tool we're not paying attention to. But if you switch around and say, we need to get people fast across the desert, you got the new vehicle that could carry like six people and get them where the heck they needed to go, which is way yeah. better. But you have to get to that problem and have the senior leadership actually buy in and own it and say, all right, let's fix road bumps. You know, so I, I just loved that whole thing because I've seen that on clients. <laughs> it's very cool to see you fix it. And, and to your point, you can't fix everything. So a lot of times people see a problem and be like that. Well, we're not going to completely fix IEDs. So why even bother, you know? We'll make them a little tougher and move on to next year. I'm glad they took it on and tried to fix road bombs, at least attempted, right? Yeah. Well, and it's and here's the other part of it, which fits into a, a larger piece of of um, my my larger model, right? My my business model, the model I try to use with my clients. The book after this one will be heavily invested in this concept, which is recognizing that in life. Uh, certainly in leadership and, and in management, but in life in general, um, a lot of things we look at as dilemmas and it, that are an either or proposition, I got to pick one or the other, don't have to be. They can be a question of balance when we can look at it as both end. And so in the case of the improvised explosive devices blowing up vehicles, um, we were looking at it as an either or. Do we get blown up or do we get not get blown up? Do soldiers die or do they not die? Okay, we don't want them to die. And so that became the whole question instead of how do we protect soldiers and go after the bad guys, both end? How do we play offense and defense? And so I think that was you know my, the reason for me bringing in that um, story about the Chicago Bears from 1985. You know, it's like you got to play both offense and defense. And we weren't doing that. We were we went totally on defense. And here we are, the most the most capable military in the world. And we're playing defense. And you can't I mean, you can't win. Just playing defense. It's hard. Um, That's so good. So true, though. And a lot of people, it's easy when you get your licks, right? When you get hit a couple times to go in that defensive mode and to be like, well, I'm just going to stop the damage. I'm going to stop bad things from happening. And it doesn't work like that, man. In business, the next month and the next quarter is going to come, you know, and right. in the army, you're going to have more people coming on deployment. Like it's. Yeah. Fix the problem. And so I think, you know, the the units that did well were the ones that were thinking like this and and get trying to get ahead of it. And trying to capture the lessons learned, and and collect the data and use the data, um, the ones that that uh, that didn't do well. I mean, it's like this is another problem with the military. We we were rotating units in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan, generally twelve months, and so there was no continuity of effort. Um, what, unit A comes in, and in twelve months they're doing what they think is right. Unit B comes in behind them, and they're like, look at these guys and go, man, you're all jacked up. This is stupid. Like, and they never ask why you're doing the things you're doing or how did you come about doing the things you're doing? 
And six months into it, they slap, smack themselves in the head and they go, oh, now I get it. Now I see why you were doing things that way. So they've lost six months. They're back on to square one. And every year it was like that. And so instead of fighting, you'll hear, probably heard this expression before, instead of fighting a war for 20 years, we were fighting 20 wars for one year at a time. And that that crushed us. And again, a large part of that is, number one, we didn't have a unified objective. There was no strategic objective for us going into Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm sorry. There just never was. Yeah. No, no. Hey, man, you spent more time there than anybody else I, I know or will listen there. So you say, you know, better yeah. than I do. It, it, we never had it. And that's certainly, that's a, that's a decision that has to be, I mean, you're talking about sending your sons and daughters to war. The people at the very highest part of the, the chain of command need to be clear on what it is we're trying to accomplish and why that's important. And we never yes. articulate that. I mean, you know, it's okay. Got it. 9-11 happened and we wanted to get the guys who did that, but that quickly went away. And so, you know, not, not having that number one, and then number two, some guidance that says, because that's the place we're going to, and that's the reason why it's important. We all need to continue to work towards that end. And so data can help you with, I think a big thing that we're lacking, which is continuity of effort. We have unity of command as a principle of war, and um, we have uh, uh, unity of effort as a principle of counterinsurgency, but there's no continuity of effort anywhere in our doctrine. And, and it ought to be given that, you know, we've gotten away from, we're in for the duration. Like World War II was maybe Korea, the last wars that we fought where we said, we're in it for the duration. You signed up, you don't go home until victory in Europe day or victory in Japan. Oh, yeah. Right. And now it's like, well, we're going to rotate you one year at a time because we know we got to be aware, you know, cognizant of, you know, what's going on back home and the families. And and again, it's it's we're, we're, we're only playing one side of it. We're thinking about the families. And that's great. That's important. But we also got to think about winning the war and the sooner the better. And let's get yeah. let's keep everybody in it to do this right and get them home as soon as we can. And get that's out maybe of it little, for good. Right. And so so. um Again, a lack of a lack of understanding of what we were trying to do, but also a lack of shared data, shared knowledge, right? Uh, data. Oh yeah. Data enables knowledge, right? And so because we. Well, I love in your book how you talk about Napoleon too about that. So <laughs> Napoleon would you give the analogy? He would write stuff and he would give it to a colonel. And I, I was having this talk with my team earlier today. I made corporal. them do the um, the what was that? The VARC. Yeah, yeah. Do those assessments and all that stuff. I mean, your book is just packed with information. I could give away two or three things. And that's how you, that's isn't still your old book. I haven't even read your new book. So I cannot wait to go jump on that. <laughs> well, th- I could I could move this and you can see the cover of the old book if you want. But um Yeah, right. I'm telling you, you, it was it was so good. But it talk you talk very much to the different levels. Like your old book is leadership and balance. And I'm very much in that realm. Like I started a company, I'm leading a bunch of people. Management, I'm assuming you're speaking to the people who are on the day-to-day. They're more tactical and it's more how to get that kind of stuff done. Yeah, I mean, um, so my third book, which will hopefully, I hate that word, my intention is to have the third book out before Labor Day. Uh, That's my intention. Um, The third book, I felt I could not write until I wrote this, the second book. Have leadership and balance. I take leadership and and I break it down into what I think are the four essential domains of leadership, communication, adaptability, focus, and influence, um, and describe that that the need for balance and that struggle between our natural tendency and why I created my leadership fulcrum assessment, that struggle between how you naturally want to show up in each of those four domains 
against what the situation demands of you in any given situation. So that's leadership and balance. But before I could write the third book, which is about finding the balance between leadership and management, I thought, well, I've got to define management first, right? So that's why I wrote this book. This book is an attempt to do for management what I try to do for leadership, uh, state or define what I think are the four essential domains of management. And for that, I have time, material, risk, and change. I think those are the four essential four essentials of management. You've got to you got to be able to manage those four domains. They some of it'll bleed over. I don't include cost because those four things affect cost. So really cost is is driven by those other four. Um so it doesn't get its own domain in my book. Hey. Um and so the the question of balance comes from how do you manage with your current condition which is some measure of abundance or scarcity? And how do you manage in those four areas depending on your condition, again, some, some measure of abundance or scarcity of time, material risk or change. And how do you prepare and balance that against preparing your team for the other condition because it's coming, right? If you have an abundance of time right now, get, get ready because as you get more tasks thrown on you, you now will not have an abundance of time. You'll have a scarcity of time. How do I prioritize? How do I, how do I manage these tasks? So I don't run out of time. Um, And so that's this book. This book is, is an intent to uh, intended to uh, define management in terms of four essential domains. Give tips, techniques, and tools to the manager. And the subtitle uh-huh. of this is for uh, the Fulcrum Centric Plan for New and Reluctant Managers. Because I've I've met so many people who get pushed into management positions that never really wanted to be a manager. You know, they loved. Yep. They loved analyzing data. They loved writing code. They loved working the line in an assembly uh, assembly line in a plant. But they were the best at what they did. And when senior management needed somebody as a as a supervisor or a manager or a director, that person got hayed, probably without much preparation, probably without much consideration to their own personal desires, and then what? And so I tell a story about a a composite character. Who who her name is Donna Frazier, and she's a mix of a lot of people that I've seen over the last six years for sure, um, that get thrust into management positions with little to no preparation. And this is my this is my gift to them, I hope, primarily. They're my they're my primary audience, that kind of person. Um, but I hope that uh senior management can learn from this too, in terms of um, you know, prepping your team, prepping your your individual contributors that you're looking at. That are part of that succession plan. How do you get them ready for the inevitable, which is probably a promotion to management if they're really good? Man, that's overlooked like all the time. And it's another one of those I see both sides of the problem because I see a bunch of people who think they're ready for management or think they're ready for the next position or think I've been doing this for five years. Obviously, I'm a lead or a senior or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it makes me think of the the Peter principle. Are you familiar with that? Where you get Absolutely. promoted to your level of uh, least competence. Talk about a salesperson who sells the best and then gets promoted to sales manager, but knows nothing about managing salespeople. And it's yeah. a very different job. And so then that person either gets stuck at sales management or figures it out and moves to director, right? That's and right. then you, that's a whole different set of skills. And so that's right. Yeah, people I find get stuck. But companies need to find those people too. They'd rather do that than like outsource it. Sure. And um, because the problem is, is, I mean, you can look at it and you go, just like you said, Rob, you know, um, either A, the person that you've just promoted to management struggles, they're hating it, the team's hating it. Um, 
you've just lost your best fill in the blank salesperson, code writer, engineer, analyst, right? Because you've you've taken them out of the line and you've put them, you know, in this management position. The second option is perhaps that they struggle, but sooner or later the person figures it out, right? And then the third option is they're a natural and just it it works out. Yep. But even that can take a while. And two out of the three of those options are suboptimal at best. And <laughs> true. And so why would you why why would you as a senior leader not start to I mean, if you understood that, why would you not start investing in your people, uh, start surveying your people, number one, to see who thinks they're interested in doing this management thing? Because there's a lot more to it than just a bigger paycheck. And right. um, and anyway, I think so. That's my that's my secondary audience is senior management that uh, could do a better job of of picking these people. I'm sure anybody who's listening to senior management is excited to hear that. Even if they're not senior management, they're hoping their senior management hears it. So, I mean, they can go ahead and share it with them if you want. Yeah, I'd love mic it. Out. But no, I, I really do appreciate that. I do want to make sure we answer some or ask you some of the questions we get to burn everybody with. Yeah, sure. Um, I know one of them is, when did you realize data is everywhere? And I know we kind of talked about when you started picking it up. It sounds like you were doing it a lot in the field. Now, were you cognizant that data was so important or was it just like, oh, yeah, wait, I got to get that. It's just part of the protocol. Again, it was like, you know, uh, feedback, right? Like you go to a, you go to a, t- a range to do uh, either marksmanship to zero your weapon or to do what we would call a live fire exercise, which is, you know, fire and maneuver. Uh, and you need feedback. Am I hitting the targets? Am I being safe? And so we use a combination of uh, instrumented targetry that, you know, knows when a bullet hits it or drops when a bullet hits it um, and observers who can kind of, you know, coach you through what went well, what didn't go well. And the basics of that, we've always, the military has always done very well. Um, But it's the storing of that, those lessons learned where we fall short. And it's the um, recognizing how to take those, that data, those, that feedback, those lessons learned and using it into the next, putting it into the next iteration. Uh, That's where the military fell short. And that's where I never really saw if I saw the true value of data, I would have been stomping my feet constantly to go, no, we got to fix this now. Um, and so it's only been more recently. And like I said, the the Innovative Executives uh, Summit, Innovative Executive League Summit that I uh, participated in in June was uh, really illuminating to talk to to you and some of the other folks who were there, uh, Olga and Maya and, and um, you know, just crazy. Like, I'm like, wow. Oh, yeah. Had not even thought about it in this way, and so I'll admit it. I'm I'm a newbie to this thing and a new a new convert, but I'm I'm drinking. Yeah, data convert. I love yeah, it. I'm a data convert, man. You hooked well, me. Well, what's crazy is I come up the other side, man. Like I just get the ugly data on the back end, and then I kind of hear from somebody how they're missing a deadline or how they've got to go do a customer report. I just get the sad story and a hunk of data, and it's like, yeah. Rob, we got to fix this. So it's I've seen it all across the board. I've seen it in logistics. I've seen it in you know operations. I've seen it. In my family reunion data, in my scout data, in my, I I couldn't even tell you the number of times when I was in uh, commercial real estate, the stuff they do with data is fascinating, you know, but I get to kind of experience your world by just asking about what data is interesting to you. And your world was fascinating because your point that the military has a ton of systems and techniques and processes that it's been refining over decades, generations, right? Like it knows how to take a new recruit and train them to be a field soldier. And That could be challenging because a lot of managers will say, well, I got my gut. I've been running this business for 30 years. I don't need to look at your high performance, 
VR data to tell me what actually happened. But to your point, had they looked at like, you know, a VR mission or I don't know, some sort of tactical training mission and seen half our guys are flagged and easy to be seen just because they don't know how to walk right. Yeah. I'd much rather find that out in boot camp than when we're deployed. So yeah, yeah. It's it's funny you should say that. Um a really good friend of mine, I, I spent a year in after I retired from the army running a program on Fort Bragg called the Army Center for Enhanced Performance, uh, cognitive skills development, sports psychology based. And um, very good friend of mine now is one of my uh my performance specialists who worked for me back then. Her name is Cecilia Kraft. Uh, she went, she ended up leaving the army, working with the army after a couple of years working with Green Berets at Fort Bragg and taking a job with the Cleveland Indians. And she's now with the Philadelphia Phillies. So she's taken both teams to World Series. Um, Gotta love it. But she tells a great story about how, you know, in the old days, the um, the scouts, you know, they'd go out there and what they were looking for was, oh, you know, great looking guy. He's got long legs, you know, obviously strong physique, man, you ought to see his mom. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, right. Got a exactly. hot girlfriend too. You know, like this is, these are the kinds of things they were looking at and then bring in the money ball guys and yes. talk about data analytics now. And you got all this stuff like the Houston Astros. I remember seeing a story about how they weren't even telling their own guys on the field, why they were doing these shifts. Like that was top secret information. It was so top secret. They didn't even want the, the infielders and the outfielders to know why when Lorario comes to the plate, we're shifting everybody over to right field. I mean, now everybody knows why, you know, but that's, that's, I think the perfect example of a, of an industry or a domain, whatever we're going to call baseball that has had the most for most of us who are just out there watching and maybe we're paying attention the most obvious representation of the importance of data. No, I agree. I loved the the whole movie Moneyball and the whole thing was great. I mean, the way they use data, the way they look at a person instead of saying how many home runs does he hit, but how fast is he to first base? How fast is he to second base? Yeah. I, I know a lot of business leaders that would love to do that. Let me look at the process and help me. How good is person A moving a box versus picking up a box versus putting down a box? And that matters, man. Like it depends on how far you're moving across a huge logistical warehouse. Look at Amazon. They have people 100% stand still. And their devices move on QR codes on the ground. It's all data at that yeah. point. They've well, they've I shifted. Mean, some of the yeah. early, some of the early uh, studies in in human factors, right? Deming, I think you know the the size of the shovel for the person shoveling coal into a furnace. Like they they optimized the size of the shovel based on what data? How much a person back- could lift? Yeah, right. Which was it, it was very much an anal- I mean, it was the analog version of it, right? We're going to observe. We're going to see how much it is. You know, like how how we're going to watch for a while, see how effective you are, how efficient you are with different size shovels. And they go, "That's the shovel right there." You know, it's like, okay, yep. well, that was like an early early version of data analytics. You know. And I think the other thing that data gets right now is it's like the holy grail. Everybody's like, "Oh, well, I'll just look at the data and it'll fix it." And I think the thing you you help evaluate is it's not the data that does it. It's the people understanding it, interpreting and listening to the right part and kind of saying, hey, this isn't correct because on the front line, it's not showing what I'm seeing in the data. Yeah. That's always something that I think is so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. What about, let's go down that road. What When's a time that data's ever burned you? Like you thought, oh, for sure, this is going to be a good idea. Just look at the data. And then all of a sudden, maybe um, not. Yeah. I, 
you know, probably investments, right? Like, you know, I got into, um, Oh, that's a good one. That's yeah. Yeah. That one you feel. I had a guy get me in, uh, start teaching me about, uh, technicals, right? Like technical analysis of the market. And I mean, some of it is crazy. Like, you know, the, uh, Fibonacci sequencing and, and Japanese candles and seeing like, you know, when it crosses, it's, 20 day moving average and, you know, points of resistance, points of support. And there's a lot peak, of that. Double peak and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, so much and shoulders pattern, for. right? Yeah. It's like, okay. Yep. Um, but, you know, perhaps I got a little ahead of myself and didn't understand it maybe as well as I did and made a few investments that I probably shouldn't have or got into them too late or got out of them too late. Um, but that's, that's probably one thing from the military side, I'd say, um, because again, that 20, almost 30 years of my existence uh, is tied to my experience in uniform, um, half my life. Intel, we, you know, we, um, oh, we put a lot of, uh, we put a lot of responsibility on Intel. And what I see, what I've seen when we get burned by the data that's being produced or analyzed by the Intel community or the Intel part of our organizations um, is that everybody else didn't understand that even though they weren't technically the intelligence officer, everybody needed to be thinking about it. And I, used to, I when I was in NATO training um, folks for getting ready to go to Afghanistan and, and teaching them about attack the network, right? And we would go into this whole, what, what are the patterns we're seeing? You know, what is what are, what are these reports tell us about what the enemy is doing, what the enemy is capable of doing? What are the, what do we think they're going to do next? And be like, OK, who's the intel analyst in the room? And they look around like, you know, well, he's the intel guy. I'm like, nope, you're all intel analysts. You all have got yes. to be able to look at the the information. We'll call it now. I'll call it data. We have to look at the data and think about it from our own perspective, whether we're the logistician, uh, the fires guy, the operator, the maneuver guy. Um, and and think about what does this mean? So I think that's, you know, everybody needs, and again, to the point about data literacy, everybody's got to start to get on board this, uh, this bus. Um, and I think, um, yeah, it's, that's, that's a big one, you know, that we just, uh, I, I didn't think you'd say that honestly, because I thought the military would have a whole team of super intelligent info guys. And then there's the grunts who just go do stuff. But in business, I'm trying to do exactly what you're saying. Like, I don't want to drop a report on somebody's desk that says to fire 20 people, unless you're darn sure those are the right 20 people. And don't just look at it and say, this must be true because Rob said it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, make sure you understand why those 20 people, like what yeah. they do right or wrong, or you know that's what I mean? Right. Or, that's that's kind of cool to think about that way. I didn't think about that from the, the front line of the military person, but I guess you don't, you need them to be able to react. You can't somebody send somebody in with bad intel and now they just sit there waiting for Brad to come with the new report. You know, they have right. to- Right. And that's, and that's, I think the other thing that we would do, and I, and I see this in business too, is that people often cannot separate the important from the interesting. You know, there's all this stuff that's coming in. that's like really interesting. Like, Hey, the bad guys were doing this and they did this. I'm like, okay, that's interesting, but is it important? That's what I need you to help me figure out. Separate the, the important from what's interesting. Cause you know, a lot of it can be really interesting, but totally irrelevant to either what we're doing or yeah. what we're doing. So that's another piece. I think where data can burn you if you start like, oh, give me more, give me more. This is really interesting. Give me more. Like, okay, but what are you going to do with it? Like, you just you need the important stuff, and then do something with that. 
I love that. Yeah, I always say like, tell me what levers you're going to pull and I'll tell you what information I'll show you. But if you're not going to pull levers, I could dump books on you all day. It's not going to do you any good. You know, that's right. That's right. That's wild. So another one we do ask everybody is, are you familiar with the term imposter syndrome? And if so, have you ever dealt with it or how do you handle or deal with it or? Um, Tough one, right? No, it is. I, I am familiar with the uh, the idea of imposter syndrome. Um, I I don't know that I can say honestly that I've ever felt like um, I was I was an imposter for long. Um, and I'm not advocating the fake it till you make it. Um, I've I pride myself on always being able to make connections and see where the connections need to be. And if I was to include myself, if I was lacking in something who I needed to bring into my mastermind or my team um, to help me uh, figure stuff out. And I think that's, you know, we would not, have, you wouldn't put people into a position to have to suffer imposter syndrome if they didn't have some potential now you may maybe you did because you were out of choices, right? And so like, hey, Mike, go go do this thing because there's nobody else to do it. Um, yeah. And but but usually there's some potential and some you know performance and potential, some some measure of that in those decisions. And so if you find yourself in a position where you think you're not ready for it or you're an imposter, um, just step back and go, well, wait a minute, I was put here for a reason. Uh, I've got skills. How do I how do I use those? How do I leverage them? Who else do I need to go find to help me? Um, and so I think I've I've been pretty good at doing that. So I I don't, and I'm not saying I'm great. I'm or that I've you know that's I've never freaking had that genius, happen. man. I love that. That I would be I'm happy brilliant. to pass it on to anybody struggling with it because this is people doing it all the time. And a lot of times it's like that. You get promoted to a new position and you're like, oh man, they're gonna come fire me and take me out today. They know I shouldn't be here. Today's the day they get it. I'm gonna meet with my boss. When in reality, they're just happy you're taking care of everything. They think you're doing good. And yeah, you have your own flaws and mistakes, but they're happy to work with you on that. Yeah. I love how you said that too, how you know who to reach out to. You realize that you're not imposter because you're not being everything. You're being the one guy who can make sure you can get the right stuff done. And they're being their own people. I thought that was a really cool way to do that too. Because you're not overwhelming yourself with I have to be perfect at everything or be this that's right. Thing. That's right. And, and, you know, it's, I like to talk to people about the difference between the relative and the absolute. And there are certain things where we need to have an absolute standard. Like this is where we're going. That's this is what we got to achieve this. If we fall short by any measure, we fail. Um, but there are also things that are, are best suited for a relative standard. And one of those is, am I better today than I was yesterday? Like I'm not there yet. Like I'm, I'm not where I want to be in absolute terms as this person. So I think that's another way to get through imposter syndrome is to look at yourself in terms of the relative change and improvement you're making, the relative change and improvement your team is making. And now at some point you got to go, okay, are we, are we ever going to get there? And what does that mean, you know, in terms of success or failure in our mission? Um, But early on, especially like, you know, am I learning more? Am I getting better at this? Is the team getting better at this? Um, do I feel like people are coming to me and telling me the things I need to hear and know? Um, is that getting better day by day? Uh, that marginal, you know, every day, just a little bit better, you know, um, that you can better to, to get 1% better at 100 things than to try and get 100% better at one thing um, and, and do that over time. So, 
I watched a YouTuber say that actually this morning. Is that if you want to have a good channel, have each video be one percent better than the previous video. He's like just a little bit, and I love yeah. that you resonated with that exactly. I'm sure you didn't watch the same video I did, but it's just I, funny that it matches. Yeah, no, I, I well, so but again, none of these thoughts are original. I'm certainly, I think there are six original thoughts in the history of the world. I've just maybe repackaged it or said it differently. So, Brian, any other questions you wanted to ask, or any other things we want to have? I'm gonna leave it open for you a little bit. I know I've been bullguarding. No, that's all right. That's all right. So you've got your leadership and balance and management and balance, and you want to do a leadership and a management book. What kind of data drives you to put those things together the way that you have? Like, is there is there a problem that you saw that you needed to solve and these books are solving that problem? Is there, is it a people problem? Is it an industry that you were in that gave you kind of the guidance to sort of define these things? Yeah. Um, so my framework is I, I liked uh, my framework is balance and and four as a as a structure. So four essential domains of leadership, four essential domains of management. In this other book, the four essential domains will be uh, what, when, how, and why. The what, when, how, and why of when do you manage and when do you lead. Um, and the the thing that really inspired me to do this was I I was asked to talk a lot on this subject. Um, and often, especially with new leaders, they'll ask you the question, which is more important, leadership or management? And I'm like, well, that's a trick question because they're both important. <laughs> right. but the better question is how are they different? And then that should lead you to a question of, well, when do I do this one over that one? And go back to my, I, my uh, discussion of the dilemma versus balance, right? If you see it as an either or, you're thinking, well, I've either got to manage here or I've got to lead here. And the answer is no, you got to be able to do both. It's just, you've got to put a little more emphasis on one while you're still doing the other. And COVID-19 for me was the catalyst. It was the, the inciting incident for um, a, a lot of what I'm going to write about in this next book. And one of the stories that I want to tell is one of my clients and how well they navigated COVID-19 because they, whether they knew it or not, they were at the same time mitigating the risk of COVID-19, which is a management process, and they were finding acceptable risk, which is a leadership thing, right? Leadership is there to find acceptable risk. Management is there to find ways to mitigate the risk. You got to do them both, offense and defense. And so um, that when that happened, I was in the I was in the middle of writing a different book for my second book. And when COVID-19 happened and everything shut down, I was like, well, that book's on hold. And then when we started coming out of it, I was like, well, I've got to, I got to add something about COVID-19 to that book. And then I started, you know, as I was working with my clients, this one client in particular started hearing the stories and how well they did and all the market share they grabbed from their competitors who decided just to try and mitigate the risk and they shut everything down and they closed all their stores I was like, wow, that was absolutely the wrong way to go. And you can look at you can look at state governments, and it's kind of the same thing. Um, if mm-hmm. if you're only doing one, you're probably going to fail. You're going to fail your mission. You're going to fail your people. You got to do them both. The question is, how much of each, and where do you find the balance? And balance isn't about equal. Balance is about equilibrium, which is you know, like how do I get them to be in balance? Which might mean I need more leadership and less management, or you know, more attention to outcome and less on process or more attention to process and less about the outcome. And so that's my structure. If I could, I guess, put a bow on that, you know, it's the balance and seeing the both end nature of these things. 
And so to take leadership as a, as a discipline and management as a discipline, and now the third book will be, how do they work together? Where do you find the balance in those two things? Because you have to find the balance in those two things in, in what, when, how, and why. So. I love the what, when, how, and why. Thanks. I'll take that as validation. I'm going to go. I'm not going to drive forward with the first draft now, Rob. No, <laughs> you're killing it, man. I loved when you talked about the word dilemma too. When you talked about, I forget which book it was, the something dilemma, the management dilemma or something like that. Yeah, the and you're like dilemma. the dilemma, the word dilemma means there's only two options. And the problem is there's more than two options. You're like, oh, but uh, the word dilemma sells books. And I was like, write down, use dilemma to sell book because that's, <laughs> that's a fantastic right. idea. That's right. And so, I mean, this, my next book is going to be called solving the leader's dilemma. And, uh, the subtitle is, you know, uh, finding balance between management and leadership. So love it. Yeah. I love it. Good use of dilemma. <laughs> but a lot of people put themselves in those false dilemmas that says, Hey, I can either do this or I can do that. And to your point, there's a way to balance all those different things out. Yeah. You don't have to do a or B really in most cases there's there's CDE. It's just a matter of thinking about it that way. Sure. Sure. And, and there's certainly uh data out there, uh, scientific evidence that would say that, you know, your, your, Chances for a bad outcome are reduced significantly if you can choose between three options instead of two, right? Just in, yeah. just introducing one more option um, helps you. Because then you're not just choosing from two bad options. Chances are one of them is good, right? That's right. And and I think so. What that what that third option does is it is it gets us out of our own uh, biases of oh I've seen this before I know exactly what the answer is. Um, it forces us to think about the problem more deeply. Like first of just even thinking about, well, what's another option? Like you got to think like, it's not just, Oh, it's clearly do this or don't do this or do a or do B like, uh, let me, yes. get, what's C, what would C be? What would be the hybrid between these two things? That takes some energy. It takes some thinking and to do the thinking and to do the analysis, you need info, you need data. Right. And so yeah, this oh, is yeah. where the third option is your, is, is your cry for, better understanding of, of the data that's out there and, and the information that's out there. How's that, Ryan? <laughs> I think we've covered most of uh, most of our normal question list in one way or another. So I think it's time. Oh, sweet. We were just chatting. That was even yeah, easier. Just chatting. We, we, we hit it all on the head here. So um, I guess, Mike, unless there's anything else you want to talk about, whether it's your books or your process, if you want to give the viewers uh, uh, any other bites of that. Yeah, we usually give people a few minutes at the end to kind of say, hey, this is what I'm selling or how to get at me. Yeah, exactly. A, a 60 second period where you get to shout out whatever you want to, whether that's your LinkedIn, your website, where they can buy something, where they can reach out to you, a charity that you're interested in. So, uh, Mike, yeah, the whatever you yours. Want. In the middle, you know, I try to keep uh, a notepad uh, next to my bed, next to the shower, and in here uh, in my office. So that when I have these brilliant ideas, I write it down and I, and I didn't, the notepad next to my bed was gone. So I had to like actually get my phone and speak into it to make a note. But um, what I'd like to say is, you know, what I try to do as a, a differentiator from, you know, maybe all the other former military guys that are out there doing leadership and management consulting or training and coaching. And I do all those things. I, I try to facilitate um, process improvement, uh, organizational effectiveness, my real passion is within leader working with leaders, managers to help them improve their individual skills, to help them improve the outcomes that their teams are achieving. But I thought about it this way the other night is like, you know, what I try to do is operationalize, like give you something that you can actually use. So operationalize the universe of potential solutions 
to fit your specific problem. I mean, I, I'm not trying to bring anybody into my past life as a army ranger, paratrooper, um, and, you know, make them do push-ups or burpees or whatever, right? Uh, what I'm trying to do is meet you where you are and help you solve your problems in a way that gives you real solutions that like can help you right now today and whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and so to that end, I mean, people can find me at my website. It's uh, be the fulcrum.com. Uh, I'm on uh, LinkedIn and Facebook with both my personal site, um, Mike Lorario or Michael Lorario and be the fulcrum.com as well as my company, Crispian consulting. Um, or actually it's just be the fulcrum at, at uh, Facebook and, and uh, LinkedIn and uh, yeah, I'm, I can't. I can't think of a better way to live this post-army life. I, I get to write books. I get to work with people that uh, are really passionate about what they're doing, and they're trying to get better at it. And I get to be, if nothing else, I get to be an observer of that, if not an, an actual participant in helping them get there. So that's me. Well, you Thanks. do wonderful at it, man. I'm telling you, I, I read a lot of different management and leadership books, and. This is one where I read it. I got to where it said, go online, enter this code and put in your stuff. And I was like, well, crap. It sat there for about a month and a half until I finally actually went and did the test because I didn't want to yeah. go farther in the book until I knew my numbers before I could yeah. figure out what to do. But once I did, I was like, oh man, this is fantastic. This fits me just right. And this tells me how when I need to be more rigid and more flexible. And I was like, I am stealing Mike Lorario. I've got to talk <laughs> to this guy and how he does this. I would but, love, man, if you want to create some micro courses or something with us, I'd be happy to host them on the site. The stuff you're doing with surveys, I definitely am going to start doing something like that for people where they can fill out different questionnaires to kind of figure out where they want to go career-wise yeah. and what kind of skills they have. So I have an analyst who's kind of going through LinkedIn, scraping all the data and saying, if I sum it up to three major data jobs, entry-level, mid-level, and senior, what are those skills? So I'm letting people come and tell me where are they interested in going, what skills do they have, and how can I help direct them to the right area, whether it's my content or somebody else's isn't my goal. I just That's want to make awesome. sure they have what they need to get to that next level. But you're yeah. providing great content like that all the time. I'll for sure have links in uh, any descriptions or wherever you're hearing this or watching this uh, links to the book for sure. Thanks, Rob. I, um, yeah, I, I, that's awesome, man. I'd love to help you with that. And uh, especially on what I would call some of the backside of that, which is recruiting assessment selection and training development. That, that whole chain is one of the other things I'm very passionate about. And so when you, when you figure out what you need, then the next question is, well, what does that actually look like? And how, what are the proxies for those behaviors or those attitudes that I can ask you about in the interview process when I'm recruiting or, or assessing you for being part of our team to know that A, you can do the job, you have the skills, B, you will do the job because you've got the right mindset. And see, you'll fit within our organization because I, I think a lot of that gets gets glossed over. But that's such a critical point, you know. And it I'm so mean glad you hit on that. I wanted to bring that up. My editor was giving me some crap about the V, the VARC. Is it VARC? Uh, yeah, visual, audio, uh, um, yeah. reading, and kinesthetic. kinesthetic. Which ways yeah. do people learn? He was saying people kind of, you know, poo poo that one a little bit. And I'm not saying it's good or not. But I think those kinds of tools are completely instrumental. You need to have tools that help you analyze and interpret your team members and the way they are and operate and yeah. work, whether they're right or wrong. I don't personally care because have one person take 10 different personality assessments, you'll find similar personalities, whether that yeah. assessment is perfect or translates, I don't know. Yeah. But I just want to know where you came up with stuff like that and why you decide to use things like that. And, you know, it's why you think those are so important. Yeah. You know, it's funny when I first started developing the leadership fulcrum assessment, um, I thought, okay, well, it's it's four domains, and each domain has two opposite tendencies. 
So that, well, that sounds a lot like it could be like Myers-Briggs, you know, it's like you could come up with the same boxes, like with the same number of combinations. And then I stepped back from it. And I thought, no, 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 wait, that's a, that's a label. Like if I, if I create these, this, you know, the, all these different combinations and you're this, or you're this, and like, I'm, I'm not sure that helps anybody. Right. And it, and it really, actually, it, it fights my model. My model is, Hey, you're, you're going to be a particular way pretty much all the time. Yep. You, number one, you need to be aware of that. You need to know what that is. How do I show up with communication? How do I show up with adaptability? How rigid or how flexible am I? What's my natural tendency? And knowing that yep. you're better positioned to recognize that the situation demands something different from you. And so the point, then the issue becomes, can I shift? Can I be the fulcrum and create the balance that my organization needs with regards to communication, adaptability, focus, or influence. And so that's why I left it just, let me give you a number for each one of those four domains. And it's funny, my wife, who you know was obviously going through this whole thing with me when I was writing Leadership and Balance, and she has a journalism degree, so I, I use her a lot as a, as a proofreader, if not an editor. And um, she she came back to me later and she goes, damn, she goes, you know, it all came together for me once I took the LFA. She's like, you know, I've been reading this stuff all this time. She goes, but until I took the, the survey and saw my numbers to see what my natural tendency was, that's what really made it click for me. And that's my wife, right? She And she'd been through this journey yes. with me. And so to your, to your point about, you know, when you took it, um, I get that feedback a lot. And I, and if I could tell anybody anything like, you know, and, and I, remind them twice in the very beginning of the book, hey, go to the yep. website and take the assessment now. Um, I thought about trying to create an assessment for management and balance, but I didn't because to me, management is a bit agnostic of our own personal wants and desires. It's driven by yeah. the condition, right? And so that's why, I, now that said, we all probably have a preference for abundance or scarcity. Like I know people who want an abundance of risk, they want an abundance of change because they, they just like it. Yeah, they I like it. impossible, right? Right, right. And so when those things are scarce, they kind of they get bored, right? And they and they stagnate. Yeah. And so um, that that could be a good thing to try try to figure out. Maybe I'll maybe with some help, I'll I'll put together that assessment. Um, but yeah, I think those they're important tools because a you need to know where you are. That's feedback. That's data, right? And then you need to know, like, then the situational awareness comes into play where I can see that what the way I naturally am isn't going to work here in this in this right. particular situation. No, I totally get you on that. I mean, it helps me too, like, knowing what other people are. Yes, depending on what they answer, maybe it'll change. But if most of the people I'm working with are visual, that means I probably need to spend more time on my visual communication than I would yeah. on just writing documentations and reading. Now... My my editor and my and Ryan here are cringing because they know there's value in having the written because of SEO and search engine optimization and all that stuff. So there's I'm not saying you can ever just ignore one, right? You have to you have to lean into both and balance, like you're saying back and forth. But I think I those think, are just really helpful tools to kind of aggregate at the whole. Like if you have 500 people, just knowing in general where they fall in those spectrums, even if it's only 50% right, would yeah. I think so there's two them. there's two sides of the bark, right? Which if you got a minute, I mean. Um, I love the VARC because, again, it's about preferences. And so whether it's my survey or whether it's a DISC survey or Myers-Briggs, you know, none of those mm -hmm. things are worth a flip if you don't answer them honestly. 
Like yep. too many, the, the biggest problem with most of those types of assessments are that we're answering for ourselves. And we know what the right answer is in a lot of these questions. Like we know what we ought to be saying. And so sometimes we say that instead of how we really, how we really perform or how we really behave. That's another reason why I wanted my assessment to be a behavioral assessment. Like not hypothetically, right. what would you do in this situation? But honestly, what have you done in the past when you encountered this situation? That to me is way more powerful. Yeah. So that's number one. You got to answer honestly. And you know, if you don't, you're going to have bad information. So, but even if you do, now you've got some feedback, right? What do you do with it? For me, the VARC, the importance of the VARC is it's about a preference, right? A learning preference. I believe that communications and learning are very similar. And so the preferences are very similar. And I've, and I, I mean, I know that there are people out there, scientists who say, well, they're the validity of, you know, this whole thing, VARC thing. I'm going to tell you in the real world, this stuff works. I mean, I've seen it play out. And where it really plays out is when somebody has an extreme preference for one of those types of learning or or communicating. Uh, and I've seen it too. That's why I say it. Like I've seen it actually happen in, in the real world. I went to school and studied business and we do that. We do the Myers-Briggs and you get your colors. And what's interesting to me is how that changes over time too. If you think we have these innate tendencies, that's true. But me, 18-year-old me is different than, you know, 38-year-old me and that's has right. a different tendency than 18-year-old me would have had. That's However, right. it does need to pivot on whatever those different scenarios are, right? Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of wild, man. But I just think it's so helpful to have something. Because to your point, it comes down to what they answer. And then there's going to be biases and inherit stuff in there. But the option, the other option is to have nothing and to just not know at all. And right. I mean, at that point, you're you're operating completely blind. That's right. The other thing I wanted to make sure I asked you to hit on too, especially for my team and other people who are like this, is the the Napoleon, was it the colonel? Napoleon's corporal. How important it, corporal. Corporal, yeah. A little bit about that. Yeah, so um, that story, and it's funny because... Uh, I mentioned it to a couple of French officers when I was doing a training session in Poland a couple of years ago. And first of all, I was like, they're like Napoleon, that guy, you know, like you might as well talk about, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, Former rulers of Germany. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. like, you know, the People, French, they don't was, necessarily love him over there. I would think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They don't. And I'm like, the guy was a military genius. He likes, he, he changed so much of, you know, what we know about warfare and how we think about yeah. it. And you don't have to yeah, want to go was, to drinks with them to admire what he did as a military leader. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so Napoleon, it doesn't have as, as much of a following in actual in France as I thought he was going to have. But anyway, so the story is I, as I heard it, and again, I, I can't, I don't know if it's true, but it's a great story because it's the, the yeah. lesson there is the lesson there is brilliant. Right. And the story is that Napoleon understood that, you know, the, the people writing his orders of daily instruction for the army, like, you know, a couple hundred thousand dudes, the levee en masse, you know, and I probably didn't pronounce that right. I don't really speak French, but you know, that's, that's one of the innovations the French did was basically conscription the draft, right? And uh, you can get a lot of manpower into the field when you do that. Um, and so uh, so the people that were going to be doing the fighting were very different than the people who were writing his instructions. And so the story is he would pull a corporal. Now, granted, this corporal would have to be literate. He would pull a corporal, and that's, that's not the lowest level, right? But that's the first-line supervisor, I like you say has to be literate because most of them may not have been right. Like yeah, these right, are, right. like you said, these are like I, 
They just got promoted to level two of military. They're that Peter Principal leader. New guy yeah. doesn't know anything. I was just infantry yesterday. And he pulls right. him over with, this is the head of the army and says, hey, double check these military important docs for me. Right. Right. And you can imagine like back then when you're, you're even though we had uh, muskets, your primary weapon was the bayonet on the end of the musket. And so it takes a particular type of, uh, let's say, backbone to be in that fight and to stay in that fight and to be good at it and to live through it. And so you get promoted to corporal where you're now in charge of 10 other dudes who you've got to make sure they're doing all the right things and using the bayonet. And so this corporal has to be literate and he brings the corporal in and hands the corporal the orders that his colonels and generals have just written for the daily instruction of the army. And he'd have the corporal read it and the corporal, he say, okay, now corporal, in your own words, tell me the instructions. What is it that the army is going to do today? Or what is it that the army will do in this attack? And the corporal would say back to Napoleon what he understood the orders to say. And if it wasn't exactly the way Napoleon intended them to be, he would send it back to his staff, back to the colonels, back to the generals and say, rewrite it. This isn't clear. This is ambiguous. This is not right. And until they wrote it to where the corporal could read it, the corporal, the person who was going to actually have to execute these orders, until that person could read it and say back to Napoleon exactly what he intended, it, they kept doing the redo, right? And so, again, don't know if that story is true, but it's brilliant in the sense of know who's going to actually have to perform the instructions that you so brilliantly are concocting in your mind and are transferring to paper or in a podcast or something, you know, however you're going to communicate those instructions, recognize that the people who are going to have to do it may have a totally different view of the things, may have a totally different education level, may have a totally different vocabulary. And so, you know, you got to understand that. Otherwise, you're you're not going to be an effective communicator. And if you're not an effective communicator, every all the other stuff just kind of comes crashing down. Yep. So that's Napoleon's corporal. I love that. Thank you so much. I know I torture my poor team all the time because I'll go ahead and scratch off something I think is a perfectly legitimate plan and I'll give it to them and they'll be like, Rob, this is almost trash. Like if it was a little better, it'd be trash. We're not right there. And they feel bad giving me that feedback because they know I wrote it, but I got to go write it again. And it's it's a process. You know what I mean? And it doesn't bother me. I'll do it as many times as I can to get the message across. But you got to get that honest, open feedback. That's right. And the desire to have it relayed. And then I know once it's passed on, it's going to happen exactly as I want because I was yeah. able to articulate it correctly. Their, their but, gift to you is that they are telling you that it doesn't make sense or that it needs to be rewritten. Your gift to them is that you're open to that type of feedback. Yeah. And, you've, and you've created an environment where they're comfortable and they feel safe doing that. Mike, thank you so much for talking to us today, man. It was very, very insightful to see all of this from your perspective. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. It was fun. I had a good time. Um, I'm doing a launch party. Book, man. Thank you. I'm, we're doing a launch party tonight at uh, LeClaire's General Store here in Fayetteville. And uh, it's, it's been a great week. I'm, I'm pretty pumped. All right, Mike, you well, enjoy your you weekend. So thank you again for your time. You too. Take care. Y'all have a great weekend.